They say medicine is an art, and I think that's especially true in dermatology because, uh, you know, we are definitely looking at patients visually. Patients are often coming Mm -hmm. in because they're bothered by their skin, their aesthetics, and certainly in this situation about their plaques from their psoriasis. So that's all part of it. And I think certainly the fine motor skills that um, one musician can develop can certainly help in the area of medicine, too. So I'd like to think so. Well, that's a really good connection you made there. (laughs) That was not scripted, by the way, guys, uh, at all. (laughs) All right, everyone. Welcome to the Skin and Joints podcast, a national multidisciplinary conversation on inflammatory skin and joint disease. My name is Aaron Sahota. I'm a primary care pharmacist from Vancouver, as well as a clinical instructor at the University of British Columbia. Today, we're very excited to have a very special guest, Dr. Christina Hahn from Vancouver, who is both a medical and cosmetic dermatologist. Hey, Christina, how are you? Good, Aaron. Thank you for having me here today. Thanks for being on our show. I'm going to introduce you and then we'll get going. So Christina is certified to practice in Canada and the U.S. And as I mentioned, is a dermatologist practicing medical as well as cosmetic and surgical dermatology here in Vancouver. She sees a broad range of dermatology patients, including pediatric uh, and adult patient populations. Her clinic focuses on inflammatory conditions, i.e. psoriasis, which we'll be talking about today, atopic dermatitis, as well as acne. She also teaches medical students and is a clinical assistant professor with the UBC Department of Dermatology. You look quite young to be a clinical assistant professor. (laughs) We're really pleased to have you here today, and we're going to talk a little bit about psoriasis. So it'll be a, a fun conversation. As everyone knows, this is a fun podcast. But before I start and we go into a little bit more about psoriasis... I have to ask you, tell us something about yourself that no one knows. Oh, gosh. Um, Okay, so when I was growing up, uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed doing is arts. And in fact, when I was in school, I won the award for cooking and home economics, art for drawing, and also played a lot of instruments, so piano, violin, and a bass guitar. So you're a musician. Yeah. Do you think it helped with getting, you know, your dermatology skills up to par? Does it play a role in your profession now? That left-right brain conversation we sometimes explore when it comes to music. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, certainly they say medicine is an art. And I think that's especially true in dermatology because, uh, you know, we are definitely looking at patients visually. Patients are often coming mm-hmm. in because they're bothered by their skin, their aesthetics, and certainly in this situation about their plaques from their psoriasis. So that's all part of it. And I think certainly the fine motor skills that one musician can develop can certainly help in the area of medicine too. So I'd like to think so. Well, that's a really good connection you made there. <laughs> that was not scripted, by the way, guys, uh, at all. That's awesome. Okay. Another question I have, we're probably going to ask every guest that comes on, Starbucks or Tim Hortons? Oh, you got to tell me the, the, the results of this poll. But I think for <laughs> me, I would have to go with Starbucks. I'm definitely one that enjoys my caffeine, and I feel like there's more with Starbucks. And something about their reward system gets me, so I think it's a good marketing strategy on their end. <laughs> <laughs> I hope uh, no one from Tim Hortons is listening to this podcast. Uh, let's just hope that. Okay, let's get into it. So tell me about psoriasis. And when I mean 
PSO, I mean psoriasis, but more about the moderate to severe form of it. Let's zero in on that patient journey. And a few things that uh, I want to focus on include how bad does one psoriasis have to be before really needing to see a dermatologist? How bad it, it depends on the patient. Certainly, I have mild psoriasis patients that are extremely debilitated by their skin and more severe patients that are much more carefree about it, likely because they've experienced such red, scaly skin for many years. But, you know, some patients will identify certain features like plaques being exposed on their skin, causing social embarrassment or symptoms of itch as reasons to seek medical help. You mentioned the visual appearance, the impact on the patient's quality of life is something that comes to mind. I think when we talk about more of the moderate to severe form of it, I'm sure that, like you see, you take that into consideration as part of your treatment plan. Before we get into a little bit more of that, any barriers do you find in practice to accessing care? Looking again at that patient journey, what are some of those barriers if you do see them in your practice? Well, certainly wait times to see a dermatologist in the city are not ideal. Um, and sometimes patients simply don't have access to a skin specialist, especially if they live in a rural setting and have to travel into the city to say, come and see me. Um, of course, there's also logistical patient-specific barriers like managing patient fears of side effects and medications. Um, other things like medication costs or insurance coverage are also considerations that can act as barriers for patients in seeking treatment. And you mentioned wait times. Certainly, I understand that in urban centers, you can be waiting a few months before you actually get your referral to your first appointment with a dermatologist. Do you find also patients neglect or delay treatment in general for psoriasis? You know, when you compare psoriasis to cardiovascular disease or diabetes, do patients put that level of, I guess, seriousness with the condition as compared to traditional chronic disease? Is psoriasis considered a chronic disease? Absolutely. There's become more and more evidence that psoriasis is a, cr a chronic disease that not only affects the skin, but in fact can affect other body systems as well. We have good evidence that psoriasis can affect inflammation in other areas, including the cardiovascular system. And these patients can, in fact, particularly the moderate to severe subtype of psoriasis patients, to have increased risks of cardiovascular disease like metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hypertension, stroke, obesity, so it is becoming more apparent that these patients should seek medical attention because it's not just the skin. Certainly also, you know, the increase in social media, television mm -hmm. commercials, these are um, allowing patients to uh, want to come and see their dermatologists or their fa family physicians more um, readily than they did before because patients, you're right, would be more embarrassed or have areas of involvement that they'd be too scared to show even a healthcare professional. Yes. So I, I do think that there is a, a more initiative nowadays with patients wanting to clear their skin. Okay. And going along those lines, how is moderate to severe psoriasis typically diagnosed? So typically, moderate to severe psoriasis is defined by, um, one way is by looking at the body surface area of involvement. And typically, we use a number of about 5 to 10 percent of body surface area of involvement. So if you take that patient's palmar surface of their hand, including their fingers, that equates to approximately 1% of that person's body surface area. 
you can estimate based on how many palms of involvement their psoriasis encompasses and get an approximate. And if they have typically 5 to 10% of involvement, then that would be classified as moderate to severe. Psoriasis. I'm getting, no one can see us, but I'm pulling out my hand here with my palm. So it includes the fingers, typically with a BSA surface. Uh, exactly. Okay. I've, I know there's sometimes people refer to as uh, just the palm itself, but typically it's the whole hand. Yes. And it's important to use the size of the patient's hand. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. And sort of, you said body surface area. I think an acronym is, is BSA, if I'm not mistaken. Sometimes when you read the literature, you talk to some folks in the dermatology world, they also mention something called PASI. And they're not talking about pasta or something of, of that nature. What is PASI? So PASI stands for Psoriasis Area and Severity Index. It's a scoring mm-hmm. tool used to measure the severity and extent of psoriasis and is uh, used to also assess treatment efficacy. It measures three features of psoriasis in a given area of the body. So redness, thickness, scaling, and each is graded on a scale of zero to four. Okay. okay. Zero would be none. One is mild, two is moderate, three is severe, mm-hmm. and four is very severe. And then each is added up for each body region and then um, calculated out to a score of up to 72. Okay. So is this something that typically, you know, you see a new referral for a patient, uh, they come to your clinic, uh, something that you would do at baseline to categorize them in terms of disease severity? Absolutely. Especially for my moderate to severe patients, I will include a body surface area calculation in their medical chart as well as a PASI score. And it's a good way to look at uh, the severity and index, as well as to look back later when you do initiate treatment to assess how efficacious has that treatment been. Later, when we talk about treatment efficacy, if we do, uh, PASI 75 refers to a 75% mm-hmm. improvement of their PASI score. Okay, from that baseline. Exactly. Okay, and we will, yes, talk about that. So moving a little bit more deeper into this, what's your experience in the real world setting dealing with these patients? And why do I ask that? One thing that was expressed from the HCPs uh, who are our listeners before even starting this project was to learn about the real world experience of the experts we have on this podcast. So tell us a little bit more. Maybe you have a, a patient story or a patient case that you can please tell us about. So I have several moderate to severe psoriasis patients, and these are some of my most resilient patients who have really adapted to longstanding scaly red skin. I think many of my dermatology colleagues and maybe even primary care physician colleagues could relate to having patients that walk into their clinics, shedding scales all over the place, and that room needing a thorough clean and vacuum after their visits. There is this one patient of mine who's very memorable. Um, He's an older gentleman who's had psoriasis for many years, actually decades. Um, He wasn't really bothered by his psoriasis because it wasn't very itchy, fortunately for him. But he would be quite embarrassed shedding all his skin cells all over the place whenever he would sit down. And he was a businessman who traveled a lot to Asia. And so anytime he'd be on the airplane, we all know those fabric seats, they just cling and he'd leave a shed of scales all over the place. So he'd be naturally a little bit uh, self-conscious. But he wasn't very motivated because he would just put some creams on and he'd feel like he would get some temporary relief. When I told him that there were these newer medications called biologics that I thought would help him greatly, he was pretty hesitant. 
because, you know, after all, he's lived with this for many years. Eventually, I convinced him, though, to go on a biologic agent, and he hasn't looked back. And he can't even believe that his skin could ever appear normal without any scale, and it's completely smooth. He's no longer embarrassed and is one of my most grateful patients, really, for changing his life. So that's a really clear-cut, classic, home-run case um, where these biologic agents can be truly life-changing. I have another patient of mine who lives very far away in the interior part of the province. He, on the other hand, unlike my previous patient, had failed a number of biologic agents before. And so he was very experienced with these. He had also very terribly itchy psoriasis, and this impacted his quality of life immensely. It actually became pretty simple to choose a biologic agent because he basically had failed almost everything else. I chose, in his case, an IL-17 inhibitor for him, and so far, he's done really well. And most of all, he's able to sleep now because he's really not itchy anymore. Wow. Well, those are, I think, very powerful when it comes to understanding the quality of life issues that come to mind with severe, uh, moderate to severe psoriasis. You mentioned two things that kind of stuck in my head, one being the scales. And, you know, when we think about patients with psoriasis, and if you don't have it yourself, it doesn't really come to mind as one of the first things. But I can only imagine if you're sitting on the chairs like we are in the studio here today, and let's say you're at a meeting, you're leaving the room, and you leave behind white uh, scaly cells. I mean, that's very embarrassing Mm -hmm. for a patient. I think the second thing is interesting is, you know, and we'll get into this, you mentioned about biologics. And sometimes there's a hesitancy about side effects, injecting yourself, And Dr. Google sometimes can be our friend, can be our foe. Everything searched on Dr. Google sometimes leads to a cancer diagnosis, unfortunately, and really putting it in context is really key. The third thing you mentioned that I'd like to dig a little bit deeper is IL-17. So for our viewers who don't know what IL-17 is, we'll have to have a conversation on that. So thanks so much for sharing that. Those are really important to contextualize today's conversation. No problem. So, Dr. Han, tell us about your general approach when it comes to suboptimally controlled moderate to severe psoriasis. Where do you start? So, after I've done the clinical assessment on this patient, looked at their body surface area of involvement, and maybe done a PASI score on them, uh, there's lots of options to choose from. First of all, there is a really good chance patients will do well on a biologic agent if that's what we decide to choose with on-label dosing, especially with the newer class agents, including the IL-17 blockers and the IL-23 blockers like rizinkizumab, rodalumab, ixacizumab, and gosalkumab. Typically, when you look at the literature, these have the highest PASI 75, 90, and 100 response rates. And those are the percent improvements that I was telling you about Mm -hmm. earlier about uh, why it's important to score their PASI score at baseline. So you can make a 75% improvement or 90% improvement or 100% improvement. That's what PASI 75, 90, and a 100 refer to. And these agents really do perform well. They have all a good reported response at around the 10 to 16-week mark after initiation. Okay, so you mentioned IL. What is IL? So IL stands for interleukin. And if we go back to biology class back in high school and university. I'll try to, yeah. (laughs) Interleukins are uh, molecules that are expressed in the inflammatory pathway, which is upregulated or increased in psoriasis patients. And so what these agents do are block these molecules, which are too high in psoriasis is a simplified way of looking at it. Okay, so it blocks that 
inflammatory pathway that you just meant. Okay. Exactly. Is interleukin kind of the equivalent of, I know we have TNF-alpha inhibitors, we have CD20 inhibitors. It's like a different class of inflammatory side Exactly. Effects. Perfect. I know that the disease pathway of psoriasis, some patients we've seen are on orals. Do you find that every patient with moderate to severe psoriasis needs to progress to a biologic? I don't think every patient needs to progress to a biologic agent, but certainly it is becoming more commonplace because there is a lot of choice now for these patients. And more and more of these biologics are becoming mainstream treatments. However, it depends on the patient situation. Certainly things like, do they have underlying psoriatic arthritis? Mm-hmm. Um Do they have insurance coverage? Are they okay with injections? Um, So these are all questions to have a discussion with, with a patient to find the best fit. And certainly biologic therapy may become part of their future. I think it's really good you clarified that not every patient with moderate to severe psoriasis needs to necessarily progress to a biologic therapy. It varies depending on the many different factors And also, these molecules, like you say, are very effective tools in the toolkit of the clinician to to use. Now, I know most provinces across the country, before you're onboarded onto biologic, you'd have to have an intolerance or failure of some oral molecules, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. These biologic agents are extremely costly, and so it often is not the first-line treatment for our moderate to severe psoriasis patients. Certainly, patients will have had to have failed some of the more common modalities that we'll often try patients on. So those can include things, first of all, at the very bottom is topicals, and that often is still an adjunct to many of our systemic or biologic therapy patients. Secondly, there's phototherapy, and then as you mentioned, oral agents. So there are immunosuppressive agents that we'll use, including methotrexate orally, as well as cyclosporin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there's also a premolast that is a molecule that is taken orally as well. Uh, so these are all options that patients may have had tried prior to initiating a biologic because they are so costly. All right, so let's move on. Quick question for you. You mentioned a few different biologic names. I want to specifically narrow in and ask you, do you have any personal real-world experience with ixacuzumab or gesalcumab? Absolutely. More and more patients are choosing these newer agents because of their high degree of efficacy and their excellent safety profile. So tell us a little bit more about Ixacuzumab, the IL-17A blocker. Tell us a little about the efficacy aspect of a molecule like that. So Ixacuzumab is one of the newer biologic agents when compared to, say, the more traditional biologic agents, like, as you mentioned, the TNF blockers. This one is a specific monoclonal antibody against interleukin-17A, and it is approved for the treatment of moderate to severe plaque psoriasis in adults. And so how well this works is uh, demonstrated well in the Uncovered 2 trial, Mm -hmm. um, where they had patients dosed on label. So the dosing is 160 milligrams subcutaneously injected at week zero, followed by 80 milligrams every two weeks for weeks two, four, six, eight, 10, and 12, and then continuing on at 80 milligram injections every four weeks. So that's the on-label dosing. In this Uncover 2 trial, the primary endpoint was looking at PASI 75 rates, and that's, again, the 75% reduction in their PASI score. And you can see that um, in this trial, when they looked at time point week 12, 
83% of these achieved a PASI 75, so 75% improvement in their psoriasis at week 12 compared to placebo, which achieved a PASI 75 rate of only 4%. So as you basically just said, you know, very, very effective. Do you find in practice with the injection aspect, a lot of patients I find are, they wish they could take an oral pill compared to injecting themselves. How do you deal with that in practice? So all of these biological agents have something called a patient support program which is exactly what it sounds like. It supports the patients. And they're often a group of nurses that help the patients understand logistics, like how to get their medication, where to inject, how deeply to administer the injection, things like that. So patients, yes, can definitely have a needle phobia component, but patients are very readily supported by the nursing support at these patient support programs and patients are often often get used to it. I've had quite a bit of experience with the PSPs, and I agree. They're very, very supportive mm-hmm. uh, of the patient, and they offer a ton of services. So they definitely, I think, help share the, the conversation that you have. You start off in the office and carry it forward and really follow the patient through. So the patient has seen you, you've onboarded them, uh, you sent them the enrollment forms. They're working either with their home pharmacy or especially pharmacy, This is interesting when it comes to what role can primary care play in monitoring the patient. So, Christina, tell us, what do you tell these patients about when these biologic therapies should take effect? What should we know about that? So, in general, I will see my new start biologic patients at about the three-month mark, which is when I anticipate the patient to report significant improvement in their psoriasis plaques. Certainly, for the IL-17 blockers, There is data to support that there is a slight benefit of a faster onset of action where we may see earlier clearance of one to two months after starting. But generally, I will see my patients at around the three-month mark. I will also have patients uh, respond a little later sometimes where they will clear beyond the three-month mark. So I think the three-month mark is a general good check-in point with the patient. So is that when you also rebook in the patient to your office typically? Exactly. And then let's say they have a good response to the biologic. Do you have a certain schedule, a Christina Hahn schedule, where you bring them back to the office or follow up with them? Uh, is it a year after or is it six months typically? I usually typically will see them a year after if, unless they are running into any issues, side effects or loss of efficacy, then I will see them sooner. But generally, I will see them a year out to reassess their psoriasis, redo a PASI score, and resubmit their application. So, Christina, I know you mentioned about early responses, and there's some good data around early responses. You've seen it clinically, your experience as well. But is the effect actually sustained? And if so, how long? How do you answer a question where a patient's asking you about what they'll look like a year or two years from now on this biologic? So all of the approved biologic agents for psoriasis especially the newer ones, perform extremely well when we look at the longer-term data, for instance, a year out. Mm-hmm. And even though the IL-17 inhibitors do tend to start working earlier on in the therapy, say compared to other um, biologic agents, the overall efficacy seems to be very similar at later time points. So, Christina, I know we talked about a few different biologics. One we've talked about is ixekizumab. How about gesalcumab? Any thoughts or experience with that in practice? Uh, absolutely. Gazalcumab is a great choice for many of my patients because it has a great efficacy, a good safety profile, and the injection schedule um, is very ideal for a lot of my patients because it is given every eight weeks. Mm. 
There is a study called Voyage 1 where they do look at patients with moderate to severe psoriasis four years out. Um, And this was a trial done looking at the therapeutic longevity of gesalcumab, which is, as you know, an IL-23 blotter. You mentioned an injection every eight weeks. And certainly, if I was a patient, I'd be more amenable to inject myself six times a year, I guess, compared to once every two weeks, knowing also that the effect is going to be sustained. So you talked about the Voyage trial there. Mm-hmm. Did they meet the endpoints that they were they were looking for? Yeah, so um, the Voyage 1 study looked at therapeutic longevity of gesalcumab, which is the IL-23 inhibitor. Um, they looked at PASI scores over the four years, okay. um, and these patients were continuously treated. So 77% of the patients that were in the study finished up to four years. Okay. And then when they looked at week 204, which is that four-year mark, okay. more than half of these had clear skin, and they were looking at a PASI 100, which means 100% clearance. Wow. And when you look at the patient-reported outcomes of Things like DLQI, which is the Dermatology Life Quality Index, looks at quality of life of the patient. A score of zero or one was achieved, which means very little or no impact in their uh, quality of life of having psoriasis. So that's a good score. Thanks for sharing that. I think it certainly is reassuring to know from a primary care perspective that these aspects are being measured in sort of a trial setting. Maybe there's a real world component with registry data that the, the effect is sustained sort of Patients can be reassured they don't need to be switching biologics, you know, every few months and cycling through them. Yeah. And the other part of the Voyage 1 study showed that mm. gesalcumab was really well tolerated. There were no new safety uh, signals when you looked at patients being treated for a longer term at the four-year mark. And it's not to say that patients um, will switch biologics because in real life that does happen. Okay. But by and large, a lot of these patients do achieve good skin clearance and maintain response over a long period of time. Well, Christina, you know that this podcast, the Skin and Joints podcast, we always go for the truth. We seek the truth. And one question we'll have to ask you, despite how uncomfortable you might be, is has there ever been any head-to-head studies around Ixacuzumab and Gesalcumab? And I know that, you know, when you look at the industry, um, can be a bit risky to do head-to-head trials with your therapies, but tell us a little bit more about that. So head-to-head trials uh, don't happen all the time in dermatology, especially with biologic molecules, but there is one actually for ixacizumab mm. and gesalcumab, mm. and this was the Ixora-R trial. This was a trial that was conducted over 24 weeks and enrolled 1,027 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. They were randomly assigned to either receive ixacizumab at the on-label dosing of 160 milligrams loading and then 80 milligrams every two weeks until week 12 and then 80 milligrams every four weeks versus another arm getting gesalcumab loading at 100 milligrams at week zero and four and then every eight weeks. Ixacizumab was associated with a faster improvement whereby at week 12, 41% of them were achieving a PASI 100, so complete skin clearance. Mm-hmm. In the gesalcumab group, the PASI 100 rate at week 12 was 25%. Interesting. So there was a slight superiority of ixacizumab at the week 12 mark. However, when you look at the week 24 mark, the responses to ixacizumab and gesalcumab were very comparable. 
for achieving a PASI 100. And those rates were 50% versus 52%, respectively. So it's 50% for uh, ixacuzumab and 52% for gisulcumab? Exactly. So I, I think the key message then is that at the end point, week 24, essentially they were very comparable, if not the same. You can consider them. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So both companies are spared. <laughs> All right. So I think I hear the phone, Christina. You might be wondering what that is. This is where we have the Ask an Expert segment. So this is a, a part of the Skin and Joints podcast. You can go online to the website, skinandjoints.ca. If you register as a healthcare provider, you have an opportunity to ask any one of our guest experts a clinical question. So they knew that we were going to talk about psoriasis today. They knew that Dr. Christina Hahn would be the expert. So we had quite a few questions come in. We can only pick one in the interest of time. So we have a question here from Matthew from Ontario. And he's asking about inverse psoriasis. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that is. And if you find in your practice or experience any biologics that work well for more difficult or resistant cases of inverse psoriasis. That's a great question. Thank you, Matthew, for that. Um, inverse psoriasis is one of the subtypes of psoriasis where it involves flexural or intertriginous psoriasis, which is essentially the body folds. So in the axillary, anogenital, or inframammary regions of the body. Mm. And unlike plaque-type psoriasis, these types of psoriasis does not tend to be so scaly because they tend to be in moist areas of the body. So this is actually, this can be very difficult, I can imagine, for our patients to experience. What's the treatment strategy for a patient like that? And I think when Matthew's question is geared towards the more moderate to severe cases, how would you, as a dermatologist, deal with that? I think, first of all, this is an area that is more difficult to treat, as Matthew has encountered. And part of the assessment actually involves assessing how impactful this is for the patient because that will help dictate what kind of treatment, whether it's going to be topical treatment or systemic treatment. Things like quality of life in terms of social relationships, sexual health, those can definitely be impacted because these are the types of locations that can be involved. So definitely getting potentially a quality of life DLQI score in these patients, which is a readily available free questionnaire that any healthcare professional can download can be very helpful in determining how this impacts the patient. Because often, you're right, patients are either too embarrassed to bring it up, but genital psoriasis is actually one of the more common special site, quote-unquote, psoriasis that we see for inverse psoriasis. And that can happen in any plaque-type psoriasis patient. So what's your personal experience like? You mentioned topicals. Do biologics have a role for, you know, Matthew's question? And have you personally ever helped uh, patients with this issue? So actually, there is uh, data to support the use of one of the biologic agents, again, ixacizumab, um, for its use in genital psoriasis. There is a randomized double-blind uh, placebo-controlled phase 3B study that looks at the efficacy of this agent in the treatment of moderate to severe genital psoriasis. And when we look at the results, 73% of these patients achieve clear or almost clear genital skin at week 12. So patients will often secondarily report genital involvement as part of the primary reason for their visit, and that could be general plaque-type psoriasis. And when you when you don't ask um, a patient if they have involvement in the genital skin, you may not ever know. So definitely it should be part of the history, the physical exam, and I, I do see it quite commonly and have had good experience with using biologic agents and clearing patients with genital psoriasis. As we are coming close to the end of this episode, unfortunately, 
One of the themes of the Skin and Joints podcast is its multidisciplinary nature. And I want to ask you, where do you as a dermatologist see pharmacists, see nurses, and other primary care providers like GPs play a role in supporting the patient's health journey with moderate to severe psoriasis? Any clinical pearls to share, thoughts about their role perhaps in, in monitoring the efficacy and safety of the therapies? Uh, so I think that's a great question because psoriasis, as we all know, is not considered just a disease of the skin anymore, uh, right. but it affects other organs, including joints, cardiovascular system, as well mm-hmm. as can have a significant impact on patient mental health. So having this team approach collaboratively with other healthcare professionals, including primary care physicians, rheumatologists, cardiologists, nurses, dietitians, pharmacists, okay. just to name a few, are critical touch points in the patient journey in making not only assessments, even delivering the injections, monitoring for side effects. These are all already being done. But I think I mentioned a few things like doing the Dermatology Life Quality Index questionnaire, which is a free tool that can quickly gauge how impactful their psoriasis is. Certainly, primary care physicians are experts in the management of things like cardiovascular disease. There's been good data to support weight reduction and obesity management for our psoriasis patients, particularly the moderate to severe ones. Okay. Um, Even simple weight reduction, even a loss of 5 to 10 pounds in our overweight patients can actually improve their psoriasis. Wow. Yeah. So these are simple little lifestyle measures that all of us as team members in the patient journey of moderate to severe psoriasis can uh, work together in. I like what you mentioned about just going back to that DLQI or the Dermatology Life Quality Index. And I think I might start using it in my own practice, but really using it as a baseline measurement, at least one of the tools in the toolkit for us as primary care providers to look at how therapy is changing their quality of life or improving their quality of life. Because that's, I think, one measure that seems like the message I'm getting from you is a really key consideration as part of the whole treatment strategy is quality of life. Would you support that? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's free. It's available on the internet. Okay. It's done by the patient. So it takes really no time at all. And it's a quick, easy score. So Christina, we did cover a lot in our conversation here. And uh, I want to ask you uh, about any parting thoughts for the future. And What are your thoughts about treatments uh, in the pipeline as we move towards more targeted therapies for uh, moderate to severe psoriasis, as well, the role of digital? Uh, We know that as a result of the the pandemic, health consumers and how they take their information has really changed. I'm sure you've seen it in your practice and, and the use of teledermatology, which certainly will be covered in a future episode as part of the podcast. But what are your thoughts about Dr. Google and the future of care in moderate to severe psoriasis? Well, I think it's really exciting in terms of the future of psoriasis management for our moderate to severe patients. Certainly, you're right, targeted therapies are becoming more and more desirable for patients, clinicians, and that's even more highlighted in the given pandemic that we're in. Mm -hmm. Patients really don't want to be generally immunosuppressed and more and more targeted therapies are coming down the pipeline. And so it is a very exciting time to be in dermatology. Now, when it comes to the internet, it certainly, as you said, could be our friend, it could be our foe. But you're right, patients are becoming more and more informed, whether it's through social media, internet forums with patients discussing treatments, and then also things like television commercials. So I think (laughs) definitely we are not oblivious to patients 
getting information. And I think that also does help in some ways to educate the patient. But at the end of the day, it is a patient-physician discussion on selecting treatment, finding out what the patients want, and making a decision together. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Khan, for being on today's episode of the Skin and Joints podcast. I hope you had fun. This was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. I, I know I did. Dr. Han, a dermatologist, a skin expert, also a musician. Something you learned today about her, we hope. Uh, <laughs> thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you at the next episode. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at skinandjoints.ca. Our team loves to go through emails. If you do have a question for any of our upcoming experts, feel free to shoot us a line. Remember to stay connected and follow the whole team on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Let's chat soon. Wait, Aaron, you forgot to mention. As a reminder, we kind of have to say this, the opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Thank you to Jansen and Lily for supporting today's episode with an independent medical educational grant. Let's chat soon.